to the Logically Faithful podcast. This podcast is created to point seekers towards the beautiful, the good and the true, and to act on what gives liberty, equality and justice for all. This podcast is created to give listeners a taste of the beautiful, cultivate an affection for the good and to provide rational path to the true, helping to bring justice, equality and liberty to our society. Your host is Khaldun Swice. Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago and Tutor of Philosophy with Oxford University. Welcome to the Logically Faithful Podcast. Thank you for coming back and being with us again. We're excited to be here. I'm with my friend, Jamie Dew. Now, Jamie... Uh, and I go back a little while. Jamie is actually dean of the college at the Southwestern, uh, the College of Southwestern, or Eastern, <laughs> excuse me, my apologies, brother. It's okay. <laughs> Where he teaches philosophy and history of ideas. He earned his PhD in theological studies from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I imagine that's the same place? Yep, same place. <laughs> All right. And uh, pastored in North Carolina for 10 years. Uh, so he was in the thick of it for a while. Uh, currently, he's working on his second PhD in philosophy from the University of Birmingham in England, pertaining to what it means to be a human being. Jamie, you don't stop, do you? Well, you know, uh, I started all that stuff when I was younger, and I didn't have all these responsibilities. And uh, getting older, and these responsibilities have a way of slowing you down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Uh, he's the author of Science and Theology, an assessment of Alistair McGrath's critical realist perspective. Uh, and co-author of How Do We Know, an introduction to epistemology, something we've covered a few times in our cast here. He's also co-editor of God and Evil, The Case for God in a World Filled with Pain, which will be the subject of our discussion today. Jamie, more importantly, is married to the beautiful, sweet and beautiful, he calls her Tara Du, and together they have two sets of twins. What an amazing, amazing connection there. Well, brother, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here with you. I uh, was looking at the news this morning in Kabul, Afghanistan. A number of people dressed in medical uniforms stormed a hospital and began to execute at least 50 people are dead. The Afghan wow. police currently, according to the news reports, are storming the hospital trying to bring peace to that very difficult situation. Mm. Just as just this morning. Uh, the classic book on the problem of evil is, of course, Kushner. Mm -hmm. Rabbi Kushner uh, wrote the book back in the, I believe it was the 70s, and the book still is uh, one of the best sellers. Uh, 1981, actually, uh, the tail end of the 1970s. And the book is about his son, where he starts off and talking about Aaron, who was diagnosed at three years old with Paragera, an aging rapidly disease, as he calls it. That Aaron would never grow much beyond three feet in height, have no hair on his head or body, would look much like an old man when he was still a child and will die in his early teens. In the introduction of the book, he says that Aaron died when he was two days after his 14th birthday. And the Krishner says this, This is a book that attempts to make sense of the world's pain and evil, and it will be judged by our success or failure on whether it offers an acceptable explanation of why he and we had to undergo what we did. Kushner comes up with so many ways of dealing with the problem of evil that are very helpful psychologically and sociologically. But then he ends with this, theologically. God does not want you to be sick, he says, or crippled. He didn't make you to have this problem, and he doesn't want you to have it either. And here's a clincher, and this is where it made the book on the theological landscape. He can't make it go away. This is something which is even too hard for God. Hmm. Kushner seems to be eliminating one of the, the tenets of one of the main attributes of God in the, in the problem of evil. Uh, oh no, excuse me, in the, in the, the, the Parthenon of, of understanding this whole, the whole issue and addressing it. Uh, and he, he's addressing the omnipotence of God. Hmm. Go ahead and speak a little bit uh, regarding uh, this issue and what got you into it and how can we begin to address it. And I, of course, I gave you a set of questions and we'll go through those. But Let's let's give you the floor a little bit to to, to walk us through this this uh, milieu. Yeah, so you know, um, I came to Christ when I was 18 years old, 
and um, I had had a pretty rough background, drugs, alcohol, parents split up when I was a little kid, failed several grades, I wasn't an academic by training at all. Um, I was rather much a wild child, and I came to faith when I was 18 years old, and it radically changed my life. I fell in love with Christ, with Christianity. Um, every it, start, it was a deeply, deeply personal and spiritual thing for me. And as a result of that, because I loved Christ so much and I wanted to be faithful to Him, I began sharing my faith with everybody that I could talk to. And, you know, you, you do that and you immediately come across people that are very skeptical and have objections. And, you know, at first it was, um, you know, it was a bit of a competition type of thing. You know, like, ooh, I've got I've to figure out a way to one-up this person. Right. Uh, after, you know, and, and, you know, I was young and I was naive and, I, you know, I was green and very immature. So, of course, that's the way I approached it. But as I began to grow and develop and deepen a little bit, you know, my perspective on that changed and I began to realize this isn't a competition. This isn't, you know, about winning or losing in these conversations. This is really about helping people to struggle with these things. And so that forced me to begin diving into this and specifically into apologetics. And as I did that, of course, the problem of evil is right there in the center of everything having to do with apologetics. And so uh, to do apologetics meant that I had to do, start dealing with the problem of evil. And it was so complex, and it's so difficult, and um, so overwhelming. And stories like you've started off with here today, uh, even if we can come up with some you know, real quick cliche answer to it those cliches just melt away very quickly when you think about the hospital situation you talked about today where these people come in and just begin to gun people down you know your your quick pat cliche answers to this don't handle that very well and so and those get very frustrating don't they like blame a snake in the garden for everything it's it's a lot more it's insulting to say the least to when you're talking to people who are suffering through that isn't it yeah, it just doesn't seem to hold up. And, um, you know, for me, frankly, that kind of created a crisis because, you know, the best, quote unquote, best answers I was hearing all of a sudden uh, didn't really seem to hold up. And I, I went from this place where I loved Christ and I wanted to be faithful to him to now I'm struggling with whether or not this is true. And I, I spent several years in that season and um, just pushed through. And I'm not sitting here today as one who feels like I've resolved it all or anything else like that. You know, you mentioned the book uh, God and Evil that Chad Meister and I did. We edited that book where we, we looked at a lot of the different apologetic issues. And I think we, we, we marshaled some good responses from leading evangelicals. Now, he and I just finished another book, a Five Views book, on uh, basically Five Views on Theodicy. Um, and that should be coming out here in the next couple months or something. Um, Congratulations. But, but, thank you. Thank you. So there's, there's five views, five different kinds of responses that we could, we could offer. And then those, those contributors, of course, critique each other back and forth. And I'm still, so two books into this, I'm still I'm sitting there going, well, okay, um, these are good works. These are good answers. But I still find myself, in a lot of ways, pretty unsatisfied with where we are. And here's why. So, and this is just where I'm at on it today. I tend to think that there are really two, they're related, but I think that there are really two distinct kinds of problems that we're dealing with here. One really is the intellectual side of this. You know, it's a coherence of theism issue. You know, is Christian theism a coherent belief system, given that it believes that God is all powerful, he's all good, he has all this knowledge, he's supposed to be the supreme sort of Mac Daddy of everything, and yet you have these horrible instances of evil. There just really seems to be something incompatible about believing all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, there are real intellectual, academic type of problems that philosophers rightly have a stake in. In that, so I think that that's one thing. Okay, and I think, frankly, almost all of the the apologetic works that we have today from the evangelical world are dealing with that issue. Okay, mm-hmm. now the other issue is, of course, related to it, but I do think it's a distinct issue, and I, I think this is what I call the existential problem or the religious problem. I think, as John Feinberg has called it, I might even call it the pastoral problem. Mm-hmm. And what I this is the problem. This is what I say to my students all the time. The problem of evil is not a problem 
because you've got a bunch of philosophers sitting around somewhere debating this in the ivory tower. That's not why it's a problem. The problem of evil is a problem because it jumps up off of the street, it punches you in the gut, it brings you to your knees, and you suffer. And that suffering, that experience right there has the effect existentially of unhitching our wagon from faith. I think that's the real problem of evil. And Calden, I got to be honest with you. While I think we have done stellar work in the evangelical world of responding to a lot of the intellectual problems, I mean, I'm content that despite whatever the atheists and the skeptics have thrown at us, I've yet to be convinced that they've shown me any actual incoherence in mm. Christian theism. Okay. At the same time, I don't think that we have really done our work sufficiently on on the pastoral side of this of actually helping people that are struggling with, with suffering and trying to hang on to faith. I think we've got a lot of work to do right there. Yes, so that's yes, kind of okay. my background in the land of where I've right, I got you. Today. The two major issues, you have the existential crisis of, of, of personal uh, agony, and then mm -hmm. you have the intellectual struggle of trying to bring coherence to this with my worldview of understanding right. uh, the right. omnipotence and omniscience and omnipotence of God. Right, and that one, having said that I'm content that we've, we've, we've really answered all that, I'm not making light of no, the no, criticisms. Okay. That I mean, they're legitimate criticisms. criticisms but. but in the interest of addressing, for those who are listening to this right now, who are saying, no, hold on a minute, I don't see that you have a coherent system. I yeah. see evil and I, 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 maybe I, the person hasn't read as much about it or maybe they have and they've read only one side of the problem maybe they've read David Hume, they've read Epicurus and they've been uh, devouring Richard Dawkins and others uh, let's address that f f uh, a little bit can you lay out a little bit of the landscape of what exactly is the, the logical problem, maybe existential kind of flugged in together there uh, what exactly yeah. is that problem and what is the classical what are the classical answers from maybe Augustine and others in a, a summary as much as possible, of course, you could take a whole sure. a couple of books to do this, which you have, uh, yeah. to, to try to address this in a way that would bring some kind of stability and, and help the person to begin searching for forward rather than continue to have that door closed saying there is no answer. Because apparently there is, as you're saying, there is. Um, let's, let's address that particular part right now. Go ahead and, okay. um, and do that. Yeah, so I've said that there's two problems, the, the intellectual and the existential. Now, let me add, let me divide the intellectual one time here. Okay, so now there's actually three, really. Two, the, two of these are intellectual, and then one of these is existential. Right. The two intellectual ones are the logical problem, which you mentioned, and then the evidential problem. Okay, so the logical problem, frankly, you can trace this all the way back to the to the ancient world with the skeptics there that were making these types of arguments, and then David Hume, and then you have H.J. McCloskey, an Australian philosopher in the early part of the 20th century, and then of course J.L. Mackey was a huge. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, J.L. Mackey was a was a huge advocate of this logical problem. Right. Logical problems basically say that the the set of beliefs that Christians hold are themselves incoherent. Mm -hmm. There's an incompatibility or an inconsistency here, such that something in this set of beliefs is just flat out false logically. If that's true, then what this would mean is, this would mean with a full, full on certainty that Christianity is false. Not probably false, absolutely false. Okay, so the way it works is, and David Hume might be a good place to start. Right. David Hume says, you know, God is all powerful, God is all good, evil exists. That set of beliefs is inconsistent because if these first two are true, then this last one should not be true. There's an incompatibility there. Now, and that's generally speaking the way these logical problems have run. Now, uh, it was popularized in the in the, the the second half of the 20th century by by J. L. Mackey, mm -hmm. uh, who really put this problem out there with a considerable force. And of course, it's responded to by people like Alvin Plantinga and a few others that really seem to have answered this question, even to J. L. Mackey's satisfaction. He even conceded prior to his death that no, I think that these types of answers work. Basically, what Plantinga did is. He said, for that, for there to really be an inconsistency there, you've got to produce some other premises. Because here's how, here's how inconsistencies or contradictions sound like. Contradictions sound like this. The ball is yellow, the ball is blue. Well, wait a minute, which one is it? Um, the shirt exists, the shirt doesn't exist. Those are, those are inconsistent with each other, right? right? But in that set of three that we just mentioned, you don't get anything like that. 
God is powerful, God is good, evil exists. There is no contradiction there. So what the atheist has got to do is produce a few more premises here. And what, basically what they do is they come in and they say, hey, look, if God is all good, he would eliminate the evil. So that's the additional premise. If God is all powerful, he could eliminate the evil. And if those two premises are true, you have to add this other premise as well, evil does not exist. Mm -hmm. Now you've got your contradiction, evil does not exist, and evil exists. There's your contradiction. And, well, and planning to argue, if what's I may, that? If I may interject, on a popular level, I mentioned earlier Rabbi Kushner, who, who mm -hmm. doesn't grant that these things, as, as an orthodox rabbi, he grants these uh, the, 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 the top three premises. Mm -hmm. But he doubts one of them after mm -hmm. the death of his son, which is the omnipotence of God. Mm -hmm. um, so th that that is an issue that um, not on a popular level, of course. Now, right. Mackey, of course, connects the three and says, "Wait a minute, there's an incoherence here. There's an inconsistency. You either yeah. deny one of the three premises or deny the entire structure itself, which apparently Mackey right. does." And go ahead with uh, Planning does uh, response to that. Well, just real quick, Kushner's response is one strategy that people take. Yeah. Let's just deny one of the attributes of God, mm -hmm. and that supposedly alleviates the contradiction. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of atheists, first of all, evangelicals, we're not going to do, we shouldn't do that at least, because, look, we're interested in defending the God of the Bible, uh, number one. And a lot of atheists have said the same thing, that, look, we're not talking about one of these lesser gods that has a few less attributes. I want to talk about that God that the Christians are talking about. So that's the one we're trying to defend. What, what Plantinga does, basically, is he says those additional premises, namely, if he's all good, he would eliminate the evil, and if he's all powerful, he could eliminate the evil. What Plantinga does is he says for it to be a contradiction, Basically, those additional premises have to not just be true, they have to be necessarily true. Meaning, in every possible world that you could ever imagine, there would have to be true. These would have to be universally true everywhere. And we have no good reason to think that they are necessarily true. And he posits all kinds of scenarios that are logically possible, which would show these premises to be false. And if that's the case, then you can't add these additional premises. And therefore, you cannot add that premise of evil does not exist and your contradiction goes away. Poof. It's just gone. Give us, so, a, give us an example of, of something Plantinga did give as a, a possible, plausible scenario for how these would work. So, yeah, he talks about the possibility of there being something called transworld depravity, for example. Mm -hmm. What if in every possible world that ever, ever exists, human beings always sin? If that's the case, then there's going to be consequences that come from those sins. It wouldn't be the case that either, A, God would eliminate the evil because he may have good reasons now for allowing it. He wants human freedom. And number two, he couldn't eliminate it since that would be at odds with our free choices. Okay. So basically what you've got now is a way of rejecting this because we say, well, transworld depravity is at least possibly true, and if it's at least possibly true, then those additional premises are not necessarily true. And so that seems to remove the contradiction from the logical problem, and for the most part, the Christian world and the skeptical world sort of moved away from the logical problem at that point. Now, okay. the problem of evil doesn't go away, mm -hmm. but that particular brand of it goes away. Okay? That goes back also, doesn't it, to the Summa Theologica, where Aquinas says, as long as God, in his omnipotence, has a reason, even if it's yeah. beyond us, for allowing such agony in his world, if he can, by his omnipotence, bring about good from it, even yeah. if it's possible, then the problem itself is solved logically. That's right. Even if it's possible. Right. And that goes back way before, of course, planning to put it in a more uh, analytical fashion. That's right. That's right. So those types of responses have been around. Planning it does put them in the analytical form, mm -hmm. which is what was needed at that point in, in philosophical history. And he does it with considerable force. And so that particular brand of the problem of evil just kind of goes away at this point. Now, you do have some flashes and some skirmishes. I, I wrote on this issue in our God and Evil book, and yeah. I think one critic of the book said, well, wait a minute, there's all kinds of other logical forms as well. Uh, that might be true, but this doesn't change the general consensus from both the Christian and the non-Christian world that this issue is not really the problem anymore. So okay. we move on then to the evidential problem. That's really where the, the emphasis has been now for the last several decades. The evidential problem doesn't try to have this bold claim that the logical problem has, that if, this is, if the argument works, then Christianity is absolutely false. What evidential 
arguments are doing is they're simply saying that, listen, the evidence points us in a probabilistic fashion to a particular conclusion, namely that God doesn't exist. They're not saying absolutely certain he doesn't exist, but it's a probability. In all probability, therefore, God doesn't exist. And in short, there's hundreds and hundreds of versions of the evidential problem. I won't try to give one version that just sort of sums them all up, but in short, the general spirit of all of them does this. We have the evidence of evil, and this counts against God, and we have no good evidence for God, and notice here that they're discounting all of natural theology and the arguments for God's existence, but we don't have any good evidence for God. Mm-hmm. So you got evidence against God, you got no good evidence for God, therefore, in all probability, God doesn't exist. And that's really sort of been where the arguments have been for the last couple decades. And now you get a wide variety of responses from the Christian world. And that's frankly what this new volume that Chad and I have put together is trying to showcase. Mm-hmm. Here are various ways that Christian philosophers and theologians have been responding to that type of problem, the evidential problem. And so I'll just give you the five from the book that we we just did uh, as just an example. Uh, One of these is uh, the Augustinian answer. And this goes all the way back to Augustine. It's called the classical answer because Augustine really does sort of capture what a lot of theologians uh, in the Catholic tradition and in the Reformed tradition have put forward. Um, basically, it says that God has granted us free will of some kind, and that part of that would require that there be consequences for our choices, and that therefore, when we choose to do things that are not in keeping with the way God ordained things to be, and we deviate from that, there are problems and difficulties that come from that. Um, and so you get a, a free will defense that comes out of this. Okay. Uh, is one way that you could, you could think about this. So that's Augustine's. Um, you have also in our book, you have William Lane Craig's Molinist response. Mm-hmm. Basically says something to the effect of, well, we need to expand the way we think of God's knowledge. We tend to think, rightly, that God has all knowledge, and that includes all knowledge of the past, all knowledge of the present, all knowledge of the future. We need to expand it even more, because what I just described, his knowledge of past, present, and future, is of this particular world. What Molinism is saying is, well, wait a minute, this world, past, present, future, is only one possibility. There were other possibilities that could have been you know, I'm, I could have not married Tara. I could have married someone else. You could have not married your wife. You could have married someone else. And think about how the world would have been different. Those are real possibilities. And God not only knows everything there is to know about the past, present, and future of this world, but God knows everything there is to know about past, present, and future of all those other possibilities as well. There's the expansion of God's knowledge. And in short, what the Molinist is doing is they're saying God perhaps uses that expansive knowledge of everything there is to know, past, present, and future, of all these different possibilities, to guide this world providentially towards the best scenario. And so even though, that yes, there are very bad things that are happening, what we can be assured of is that God has secured, so to speak, the very best set of possibilities that there could have been, given human freedom, um, using this vast knowledge that we've got. Let me pause here for a moment and ask you, when you said the best scenario for the vast, are you looking at this from more of a utilitarian perspective for the greatest good for the greatest number, or is God after something else under the Molinist perspective, something even greater than that? Yeah, Yeah, great question. And this is a question that Molinists, and I'm I'm not advocating for either one personally. Molinists get asked that question all the time, though, and I think, um, you know, I, I tend to say, well, if I were Molinist, I'm stepping into that. I think the best way to answer that is, the question is basically, what are God's motives in picking world X? Why did he pick this one? Was it just the utilitarian thing of this made the most number of people happy? Or were there other things going on? And I think that the Molinist has a few good answers to that. They're speculating, but they're pretty safe speculations, given what we know in Scripture. I mean, you could say if you're a Molinist, well, maybe this is the world where God is maximally glorified. Maybe you could say if you're a Molinist, this is the world wherein um, the most number of people get saved. Maybe you could say, if you're a Molinist, this is the world with the best ratio of good and evil. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other worlds that could have been that were far, far worse than this world would have been. 
And maybe they could say this is the world with the least amount of suffering and pain, and therefore kind of a utilitarian thing there. I think the Mullins has any number of things they can say in response to that. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead for the other. we got three more, right? So, so you've got the Augustinian, you've got the Molinist, then we've got uh, William Hasker's open theist uh, model, mm-hmm. where he doesn't offer a model that is specifically an open theist one, but rather he just says this is compatible with and consistent with this with an open theist uh, model. And this is where God has limited his knowledge in a way. Mm. God has just limited his knowledge of the future because if he knew the future, in knowing the future, that would solidify the damnation of all those who did not believe. God knowing it would happen, it's guaranteed that it will not happen at that point. And so those who didn't believe, now they are damned for all of eternity. So in knowing the future, this would create a problem, a moral problem for God, because it would solidify the damnation of so many. So God withholds himself from knowing those things. And as a consequence of that, maybe God didn't see the evil coming, so to speak. Maybe that's one response. And so that's an example almost like Kushner's that you you mentioned earlier, where we're going to limit a classical attribute of God now. I wonder Um, if Hasker and the the open theists, they don't necessarily, do they, uh, now forgive me here if I'm getting this wrong, they don't necessarily limit that attribute and saying God doesn't have it. What they, maybe they'll say is God, like you were saying earlier, withholds it. Would that be the distinction there? Or maybe there's even a debate among the open theists themselves about that. Yeah, good question. I think that there's a debate between the open theists. I've heard some say he just doesn't know it because they think that that the future doesn't yet exist to be known. So they sort of borrow from the grounding objection there. The future is not a real thing that exists yet, so it doesn't exist to be known by us or God or anybody else. Some say he just flat out doesn't have it. Others say, well, no, he's God. He He could do it. But he, as God, would not know it. it. They would say, it's not fit for a being of his nature, good and holy and just. It's not fit for a being of his nature to know that. So he deliberately, though he could, in terms of brute power, he has the ability to know it, but it was not fit of his nature to know it, so he chooses now to limit himself. and not, He doesn't peak, you know? He's like the good child that doesn't peek at the presence of the Christmas tree. Amazing. And I found uh, Bruce Ware's uh, response to that to be very helpful in my own personal Mm -hmm. devotions and walk in the the greater and the lesser glory of God books. They were just uh, amazing responses to that. All right, go ahead with the uh, next. You have at least two more um, in the book. So you have um, Thomas Ord. Uh, he's probably not as well known as, as some of the other contributors in the book yet, at least. But he's he's uh, written a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God, where it's hmm. it's basically like the Hasker response, only a step farther. Um, it's not just that God would not God would limit Himself in knowing the future. God would limit Himself in controlling anything in the future, because He wants us to have free choice and being loving as He is, and all of those things. He is going to leave those those choices and those events open, so to speak. So God is going to limit himself in that way as well. So it's a stronger type of limitation that God is placing on himself, is what Ord's uh, arguing for. Sometimes in, in the book it's called the essential kenosis hmm. view. Kenosis, of course, from Philippians 2, the emptying of himself. He's going to empty himself of the, that type of control of those future events. So that's a response. Sounds like a different version of the Molinist response. It, it, uh, or at least of the open theist one. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. The last one, of course, would be uh, Stephen Weitstra, where he's, he's uh, this is a bit more of a defense than a theodicy. Mm. And we didn't make that distinction earlier, but no, in not. short, defenses are when we respond to an argument that's been given and we simply try to show that that argument doesn't work against us. And theodicies are when we step in and we actually try to give a positive account on what God might be doing, why he's letting this be. Okay? So Stephen Weikster is going to offer a defense now. And so to understand his response, you've kind of got to understand the argument, or at least one of the big arguments from atheists. Mm. The argument is this. If God, first of all, God... Christian theism is not justified or it's not consistent unless God has good reasons for allowing evil. Okay? That's kind of premise one. Premise two, if God knew, if God had good reasons for allowing evil, we would know them. Okay? Premise three, we don't know them. Premise four, therefore God doesn't have good reasons 
And so, conclusion, therefore, Christianity is unwarranted and unjustified and incoherent. Okay, so that's kind of the argument that, that Weitz was responding to. Okay. And he says, hogwash. He develops something called skeptical theism, and that's kind of an odd title because it makes people think that we're skeptical of theism. No, 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 no. He's a theist that is skeptical of that kind of argument. He basically says, why would we ever expect to know God's reasons? And furthermore, the fact that we don't know God's reasons, it doesn't logically follow that God lacks them, right? I mean, God could have all kinds of reasons that are beyond our kin, mm -hmm. beyond our ability to understand. And so just because you and I are ignorant of God's reasons for allowing evil, it doesn't follow that God doesn't, in fact, have good reasons for allowing evil. i got to tell you, for years and years, I thought that this was just a problematic response, but as I read it through more carefully several times editing this book, I think that Weikstra makes a really good case here. This is part of the reason I say I'm content that the atheist has not yet defeated Christianity with the evidential problem and shown us that, oh yeah, we should just get rid of Christianity. Look, I don't know what God's reasons are, right? That was my struggle in those years and years prior to all of this. I didn't know what God's reasons were, and that, that caused a crisis for me. And now I'm content to say, why would I expect to know what God's reasons are? He's God. He's beyond me, right? That I don't know what his reasons are. It doesn't mean that there aren't reasons. Exactly the the so, uh, the bridge between epistemology and ontology, right? Merely because yeah, I don't right. know something doesn't mean it's not there. It's this classic that's argument right. of uh, ignorance, right? The the fallacy of ignorance. That's right. It, it reminds right. me of something in the past where where we would say it this way: If I had the power and the omnipotence of God, I would change things quickly around the earth, around the world, and throughout history. But mm -hmm. if I had the wisdom of God, I would leave them just as they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But continue. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, we don't. We're not in a situation where we can see what God is up to. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of times, Paul says, "We see through a glass darkly." Would we be able um, to even handle it if we could? That's right. Yeah. Um, so I think, with all due respect, and I want, I don't, I don't want to be one of these guys that's contributing to the snarkiness. And the sarcasm and the cynicism that typically takes place between Christian apologists and skeptics. Um, at the same time, I want to say to the skeptic who makes this kind of argument at this point, with all due respect, there is a lot of hubris in this argument to think that you would know. I mean, who do we think we are here? We, we are feeble creatures that are finite. Right? I mean, I am I'm a finite creature trying to comprehend the infinite. How, how successful am I ever going to be? I think we can have partial uh, understanding, and that's been given to us in the Scriptures, it's been given to us in the man Jesus Christ, and it's been given to us in our own personal experiences with God. But it is always and forever partial, right? Even in heaven, I think that I'll never get to that place where I got it all, I understand it all, because I'm a finite creature trying to comprehend the infinite. Okay. I'm also fallen, right? I do think that while I want to be careful that I don't talk about this in a cliche, weak way, Adam's sin, I do think that what the Bible describes here is very real that the world is not the way it was originally designed to be, that there's something wrong with it, something's bent, something's broken, something's tainted, something's vitiated. And the world now, though still filled with many good things, right? I mean, I still see roses and dandelions, and I smell honeysuckle, and we, we laugh at each other, and we fall in love. And, you know, the world still does display the handiwork of God in so many different ways. Despite all that, it also has cancer. And it has disease, and it has terrorism, and it has warfare, and it has bloodshed, and it has tension, and it has all those things too. Something's wrong, right? And I think that what the Bible describes here is a very real thing. We're not just finite trying to understand God, but we are also fallen. And that means not just that physically we're fallen, we're fallen even mentally, intellectually. Things we don't have the ability to see as clearly as perhaps we once could have. And then last of all, I think that where I say to my students... You, if, I may, if I pause you for a moment. Yeah, sure. If you think that could contribute, and 
for example, in the conversation Job has with God at the end of the book of Job, which is one of the most profound books um, uh, ever written, actually considered one of the oldest books in the Bible, and I recommend my readers look at that. But God doesn't give Job the answers he, uh, he demands. Could it possibly be something you just touched on now? The fallenness? Yeah, and the ability, and not the and the uh, limitedness. Job, yeah. maybe even if God did give him, he would not right. be able to l receive it, let alone understand it. Right. Yeah, you know, C.S. Lewis. I think the, yes, in short, C.S. Lewis has this. I forget which work he did off the top of my head. I'm 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 still a little dull from my sickness that I've had recently. Um, but C.S. Lewis talks about. Um, I think it's for, for either two dimensionalists trying to understand three dimensionalism, or or. Three-dimensionalist trying to understand four-dimensionalist. You probably remember better than I do what I'm talking about. Yeah, I got yeah. He says, imagine, though, that you've got people that have only ever seen two-dimensional things. They can only ever think in two-dimensionality. I mean, they don't have the concept of the third dimension. And they see and they encounter three-dimensional. And now they try to describe it in two-dimensional terms. You just don't have the ability to see that properly and to articulate that properly. And I think that that's in part what's going on here. We're, we're talking about a gulf, a massive gulf, not just a quantitative gulf. We're talking about a qualitative gulf between the infinite and the finite, right? We, we, we're different kinds of beings than God, and we're fallen on top of that. And then to be a good Baptist preacher, let me give you one more, and I'm going to alliterate. We're, we're also filtered. And this is, uh, this is sort of, I'm not a postmodern, but this is a tip of the hat to an observation that postmoderns make that I think they're right on. Mm -hmm. You and I are culturally and historically situated. Every one of us are. I see the world as a 40-year-old white male in the South, because that's what I am. That's right? what you are, yeah. Every person on the planet sees the world from their socio-historic economic vantage point. And that, that taints us. There's a filter that you and I see through, right? Right. And so I think those three factors are huge factors in our ability to understand fully and completely. If we could add one more, if I may. Can you make it an F? <laughs> <laughs> if I can, fallen, um, pain, I'll have to think of something with pain, um, uh, suffering or agony. Because when you are in the agony, in the thralls of the pain in the agony itself, that also clouds your, your ability to see sure. clearly as well, sure. if I may. Yeah. All right, all right. You had one more, uh, the final one? No, that, that, well, those, 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 are, those are, are my big ones that I, that I have that, that just cause us to have um, difficulty. Okay. Uh, um, you didn't cover, or maybe I, you did in one way and maybe I missed it, uh, the Reformed answer, where God did mm. not have a plan B, this was his plan all along. Yeah, you know, that maybe maybe God, this is exactly the way he wanted to do it, um, because, and, and I think Reformed people have, so so there's what's happening right now is determined by God, is in short the Reformed answer, Okay. Um, and I think they have at least two reasons for saying that. They could say this is what brings God maximal glory. You know, there's something about this that does, in fact, glorify God. Maybe not in that particular moment, but in the grand scheme of things. Or maybe he has determined it to be this way um, for other types of reasons as well. Uh, and th they could leave those just open-ended, you know. Um, you know, determinism almost always runs into hardships on the moral side of things. Mm. Uh, if if there were other ways that things could have happened, um, and God determined it to be this way, then now you do have to deal with, okay, so what do you do with the unredeemed? If hell is real, mm -hmm. the doctrine of hell is real, and you have, a, you have not just one or two, you're talking billions of people in the history of the world uh, that God created now for no other reason than just bringing them into existence and letting them be suffering in hell forever. That that's a problem morally, it seems like. Mm -hmm. um, and then suffering too, just suffering in general. If there's other ways that God could have in fact done things, but suffering is part of it. It's hard for a lot of people to see, and I, and I have to put myself in this camp as well. Though I'm not a hater, there's much about the Reformed tradition I actually deeply respect and appreciate. This is an area where I struggle with this tra this tradition. Um, it's hard for me to see how God is glorified in that. You know, in, in what way is there glory for God in, in this when, when there are billions of people uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth 
and it could have been different. So, right, but that uh, goes back to something you said earlier in, in the defense of the uh, reformist. Merely because I don't see it or don't understand it, it doesn't mean that God may not have this adequate reason for it. I remember I was at a lecture by Peter Kreeft at uh, Cambridge University at the C.S. Lewis Institute over there, and he said something that was almost tattooed on my soul. He said, "When God said, let there be light,' he saw in the future, in uh, what, what possibly two thousand to three plus thousand years later." or maybe even according to the old earth as well, 15, 12 million years later. Uh, whatever it was, he saw his son hanging on that Roman cross and he saw the very flies buzzing above his head when he mm. said, let there be light. It was mm. all part of this magnum opus of God, some kind of massive blueprint that he has set forward in his structure, this edifice of history that is has at its climax the death and resurrection of Jesus to glorify and magnify God and bring us some kind of wondrous um, uh, union with him. And, and there's so much mystery in that that just boggles the mind. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I say in fairness to the reform side, I just mentioned that the, you know determinism is a big problem on the moral side. Look, I say to my students all the time, in fairness to them, anybody that wants to affirm all the classical attributes of God, um, determinism at some level is unavoidable, right? I mean, if you hang on to omniscience at all, and that omniscience entails that he can see the future of what's going to happen, then there is some sense. Maybe it's a, maybe we should maybe we should find a different term to talk about it. I don't know, but there is in some small sense a determinism there. He sees that these things are going to happen per the the creep quote, and he has granted it to be, right? Well, at some level. There's a there's a determinism there, right? And so now, granted, in that one there can still be secondary causes and primary causes and all of those types of things that are woven into that. But still, you see God seeing it, knowing it, decreeing it to be. And so, uh, I think at some level we've got to hang on to that. And so, I, just to tip my hat, maybe a little bit, this is why I think that maybe the Molinist response really is helpful for us. Of, of the five in the book, the Molinist and the skeptical theists are the two that resonate with me the most. Let's uh, let's uh, start wrapping this up on in the interest of time okay. here. Um, for those who are listening, who are going through maybe a period of, of uh, difficulty, can you touch on the difference between, and I just gave a lecture on this, on the, the problem of evil, and one yeah. of the most difficult lectures I've ever given in my life, just just touching on and going and seeing the agony that so many people have gone through. Uh, I had to touch on and see that there's a difference between uh, suffering, per se, and evil. Mm -hmm. They're not always necessarily the same. Right. Can you touch on that and maybe offer a word of hope um, or encouragement, maybe bring in the old pastor of you out, uh, yeah, to yeah. those who maybe are listening to this intellectually, but they are going through a period of time that's trying their spirit and stretching them. Can we end with that kind of note, um, the difference between evil sure, and was, suffering and then maybe, I was maybe a ray of hope? Yeah, I was hoping you'd bring it back because I do think as, uh, this is where we start, and I think you got these intellectual problems. I think you got the existential pastoral problems as well. You know, there really is a difference, number one, between suffering and evil. Um, evil can exist in such a way uh, in hearts and minds and yet never actually express itself onto human beings where they have to suffer in ways. Um, so, you know, we do have to make a distinction between them. I think what I tend to consume my mind as I think about on the pastoral side is this. And I'd want to say something different to the believer and to the non-believer here, okay? Uh, what I would say to the non-believer I think has as much help for the believer as well, but this is one challenge maybe I would just put out there. And I, again, if you're listening to this podcast and you're, you're a skeptic, you're a non-believer, I don't throw this out there to you to to try to you know be macho or, or you know or anything like that. I just honestly, this is a concern for me. The problem of evil exists, and for us as Christians, it is a real issue. Um, the skeptic tends to think, well, we can solve this problem by just get, getting rid of God. Okay, and what I would say to that is two things. Number one, okay, fine, you can get rid of God, but now you got no hope, right? I mean, you, you got nothing other than just we're here, there are brute facts about this world, maybe some things are pretty and you can account for that and all that stuff, but you die and that's just it. And that's it's an end to your life and frankly it's a situation where there is no, there is no restitution for things that have happened that are wrong, right? Mm. So if there is no God, there is no hope. Furthermore, I want to challenge this idea that getting rid of God solves the problem of evil. Does it? 
Where, where does this objection to evil that all of us feel come from then, if in fact there is no God? It seems that the cry and the revolt that we have against these evils and this suffering, it seems to assume and even require something like the God of Christianity to even have the objection. And then furthermore, I would say one other thing. Even if it did solve the problem of evil, now you've got a whole litany of other problems that in my mind are bigger problems than the problem of evil. And that is, why is there anything at all? I mean, why is it that when we look at this vast universe, why is it here? And I'm talking about the physical side of this. And why is it this way? Why is it filled? Why is everything in this world wired in such a way that it suggests meaning and purpose and hope and that this is going somewhere? I said to my wife one time when I was really struggling with all this, and this is as I was sort of coming out of this struggle and this doubt, I said, if there is no God or anything else, then universe be damned for this sick, twisted joke it's playing on all of us and making us think that there's purpose and meaning and all of this stuff when there's just nothing. I think if you get rid of God, you have massive problems on explaining everything else, anything at all. Else, right. yeah. So for the unbeliever, I would say, look, does getting rid of God actually solve your problem? I don't think it does. And I think if, if anything, you now have bigger problems that you've got to account for. Okay. To the believer, I would say, in addition to those things, I think what we've got to develop, Caldoun, uh, as I look back on this biblically, is a good theology and a good practice of waiting. And I say that because, I mean, you think about the history of God's people. This is not the first time we've seen long periods of time when heaven seemed to be silent. And I think that for the believer, that's really part of the problem. We're suffering, we pray, we don't seem to see God healing people and doing things, and that's eh, a problem. In the Bible, it was happening all over the place. God, people would pray, and people would get healed. But now, wait a minute. You remember, God promised Abraham, you know, I'll make you a great nation. But he also told them that Israel would go down into Egypt and be there for hundreds of years. Mm. And after hundreds of years, and then they would suffer, God would bring them out. So they go down, and it starts off as a positive situation, but it very quickly turns into a bad situation. And the people wait in that bad situation for a long time. They were waiting on the Lord. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Bible says, and God heard the cry of his people, and he remembered his promise to Abraham. It took a long period of time. The people had to wait on the Lord. Then think further. There are other times. The, I mean, there are plenty that we could talk about, but here's just a few quick ones. The book of Malachi ends, the last book in the Old Testament, and there are 400 years of radio silence huh. from heaven. Right. Until finally, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us. And now we have Christ here, right? The 400 years where the people had to just wait. And now Christ ascends back up into heaven. And for 2,000 years, what are we doing here? We are again waiting. We are waiting on the Lord. And I think that what we've got to do pastorally is learn again a good theology of and practice of waiting because we are people that are waiting on the Lord. There's something profound that happens in our worship and in our souls when we learn how to wait on the Lord. And so I think that that's part of it. And I don't have everything to say to that, but we must remember that God is a covenant God who keeps his promises and we now wait on him to do exactly that. That's powerful. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jamie. Dean Jamie, Professor Jamie, Pastor Jamie, <laughs> friend Jamie. Uh, I appreciate you being with us on this cast. Uh, and others. Um, I have some few thoughts to wrap this up with. Um, I don't want to keep you. If you need to get going, we'll wrap that up. Unless you, uh, you have a few minutes to hold on here. Give me, let I me can know what you're Okay. Um, uh, Piggying back on what you said, and we'll hopefully wrap it up with this. Um, after Jesus had left um, approximately 2,000 plus years ago, we are waiting. But we are also doing something more. And if I can uh, tap into some of the works of N.T. Wright and others, he had left in his place his body, the church. And, if, and my skeptic friends, if you're listening to this, I, I challenge you to please check this out and verify this. There is no group of people in the history of the world who have done more good and alleviated more suffering, poverty, and, and lifted up education than Christians in the history of the world. 
That mm. is called the church. Yeah. More than any other people group, they have done this. Matter of fact, right now, the American Red Cross, one of the world's largest humanitarian organizations, has 13 million volunteers in 187, million, 187 countries, hoping to respond to disaster reliefs that you wouldn't believe. Over 100 million people across the globe are being affected by the Just American Red Cross alone. I'm not even talking about World Relief and, and uh, Samaritan's Purse and other organizations that are alleviating pain, AIDS, um, uh, material child health problems, um, uh, refugee problems. Christians are at the forefront of this throughout history, and they're on the forefront of it now. Right. And, and we are making a difference worldwide. I think Christians are. I think God's body is. And when we see evil in our world, and if you see evil... I, I just want to encourage you, if you are a believer, get up off your blessed behind and go out there and make a difference. You know there are people suffering. You know there's a lady across the street who needs your help. You need, There's people there who are in the hospital who need to be visited. There's a child that needs to be encouraged. There's a student that needs to be uplifted. Let's be there. Let's be the hands and feet of Christ until he himself returns to lift the veil and show us something we've never even imagined was there. Hmm. And with that, uh, I'll conclude in... Um, and I'll give you the last word. I think, I think that's, that's exactly, exactly right. right. Um, our God is a God who weeps when we weep and um, has stepped into this world to suffer with us in the man Jesus Christ. And he commissioned his followers to be a part of fighting the effects of the fall, both spiritually and physically. And um, not only what I'd say has the church been this powerful force throughout its history of fighting the effects of the fall. But even, I think we could add to that, modern science is born in a Protestant Reformation world uh, where we see the explosion of new technology. I'm not saying Christianity is completely responsible for modern science, but what we I am saying is it's sort of we have our provided bedrock of this, where this is born. And so, and Francis Bacon, for example, saw himself, I mean, I say Francis Bacon is the father of modern, the modern scientific movement. I know everybody points to Newton because of the great discoveries, but look, Bacon is the one that gives us the inductive method, and that starts the whole ball rolling. And what he thought was, is, hey, look, we need to take nature out for a spin and see what it'll do for us so that we can fight the effects of the fall. Mm. So we can develop technology and medicines and do things to fight this suffering and this sickness. And so I think that, I think that Christianity's done quite a bit to try to fight the effects of the fall. And we're doing that now, and yet we're still waiting on the Lord to bring it to completion. Well, with that, we'll end, and thank you. I really appreciate your time, and I'm um, you know, praying for your healing in other, other ways, brother. Thank, thank you, man. Thank I you appreciate so it. It's a bit of fun today. <laughs> you too. Thank you. All right, bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Well, thank you for being with me. I appreciate your time. If you really did get something out of this podcast, if you found it helpful, guys, I would really appreciate it if you left some kind of uh, feedback on iTunes. That would help our ratings and help me uh, stay on the air longer uh, to be able to give you uh, these wonderful podcasts and interviews and things of that nature. Again, I appreciate you being with me. Go and make the world a better place, one life at a time.